Good morning. Thank you, Jesus. Well, do you know why we baptize with water? Well, there's really three reasons for it. The first is that it's a memorial, it's a, it's a, in obedience to Christ. He commanded it, so we're to do it. And it's just that simple. He said, be baptized. And uh, the second reason is because it's uh, to be a public testimony of what God has done, that he has rescued us out of a life of sin. And the third is that it's to be a marker in our life. But we can go and point back that day. I was baptized. That day I made my commitment public and I made it real and I will not turn back. And I think those are three good uh, ideas that are behind uh, baptism. I'm not going to go into uh, anything on that. That's not my message. But um, I figured I'd just mention it in case you weren't familiar with it. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. While you're turning there, we'll pray. Father, we come before you now in the precious and wonderful name of Jesus, and we ask that you would speak to us, Lord. Lord, speak to the church. And Lord, I pray you speak to anybody here that does not truly know you. In the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen. A couple weeks ago, Pastor preached on the aspect of leaning our head upon the bosom of Christ and about a radical pursuit of him, which is really what we are created for. It's not unique. It is normal according to what God calls normal. And uh, Troy preached on the Friday night service we just had and preached on the aspect of that pursuit of God, that loving him enough to seek him and needing that love to really define our life. So... What I want to do this morning is I want to look at what does that mean? What does that mean? What should that look like? If I'm really coming to the place to begin to love Jesus and really begin to love him like I should, if I'm pressing into that, what should that look like? Because there should be an expression. If there's no change in me, then it's all been worthless. I've not really become a follower of Jesus then. If I become a true follower of Jesus, there's going to be a radical change in my life. But what is that going to look like? And yes, there's many expressions of it, but I'm going to deal with one that is very important here. The final verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 31, Paul concludes that chapter on spiritual gifts, and he says, But desire, but eagerly desire the greater gifts, and now I will show you the most excellent way. So he takes that whole chapter and he deals with the aspect of gifts and how the body is to function and some really great stuff there. And then he says, okay, desire the gifts. Desire those. Seek after them that they're part of your life. But there's something more. There's something more important I want to teach you. There's something that brings right purpose behind the gifts or talents that God gives us. And what is that? The most excellent way. And what is the most excellent way? 1 Corinthians 13. The greatest commandment is to love God supremely, right? With all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. That is to be the goal of every believer. We do not attain that in this life. But we should get more and more and more into the fulfilling of that commandment. To love him more and more and more as time goes on because we get to know him more and more and more. Because that's how love works for us humans. God loves us perfectly because he knows us perfectly. He can't love us more and he can't love us less. He loves us perfectly because he knows us perfectly. But we love by knowledge we must learn, we must know, and the more we know an individual, we can make the choice to love because the love God calls us to is not the emotional love, but it's a love of choice. It's a love that we choose to love him and we choose to love others whether we feel like it or not. We do it because that's what love is and what he calls us to be. We were given a second commandment. 
That's the flow out of the first one, which is to love others as, as we want to be loved. And you know, that's a really, really good, practical expression of what love is to be for the average individual, even for the average believer. <clears throat> and so, you know how many marriages would be spared from divorce or just being nightmares if they did that very thing, love their spouse as they want to be loved? I mean, you know how many marriages would be saved and rescued just from that? But that's not what Christ is calling us to. He did away, if I might say it like that, with the second commandment and brought us a greater commandment. He brought us another one, which is in chapter 13, verses 34 and 35 of the Gospel of John. He said, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Now understand what's going on here. That second commandment is loving people as we want to be loved. So it still has this self in it. I want to be loved. I want people to love me right. So I'm going to love them right. So they love me in return. But here is a love he's calling us to that is totally different. It is a selfless love. It is a disinterested love. It is a love that is not based upon what people do to us. It's based upon the reality of who this God is. And we make the choice to love selflessly. It's not anymore the aspect of saying that, well, I want to be loved, so I'm going to love you in return. It's the idea that I will love you whether you ever love me again. I will love you whether you treat me kind. I'll love you whether you abuse me or hurt me or torture me because I'm a Christian and you're a God-hater. I will love you as my spouse whether you do what I want you to do or not. I will love like Jesus. And when I can't love like Jesus, which is basically all the time, we go to him and we say, God, I need some help because I don't know what love is. I don't know how to love. See, only by loving God supremely can we begin to love others selflessly. Only, that's the only way. Anybody here that is not a real follower of Jesus, you do not have the ability to love others selflessly. Every expression of love in your life is still about you. You are still the center of it. It's still about your personal fulfillment. And so you love that way because you want something back, but you don't know how to love as what Jesus is calling us to love. Now we're just going to look at the first three verses of 1 Corinthians 13. And what's going on with these, with these verses is that before Paul can teach on what love is, he must dismantle the lies we live behind. That's what these three verses are all about, is confronting lies about love. Lies that everyone on this planet believes. Lies that are propagated in a host of ways through movies and books and, you know, music and all kinds of ways that this idea of love as what we define it as human beings, it is a twisted mess that produces nothing but pain and sorrow because love that is natural is selfish. It is always selfish. It is always self-seeking. It's always about us as an individual. So we want somebody to love us because we have this need of being loved. So we look for somebody to love us and meet that need. And it all becomes a selfish pursuit. Make me happy. Satisfy my needs. Take care of me. I want you to meet my needs. And imagine you have this marriage where you have two selfish people that are screaming at each other, make me happy, make me happy, meet my needs, meet my needs. And they can't because all they are is at war with each other because they're so self-absorbed they can't even see the needs of the, of the other to meet them. In Christ there is the ability to have absolutely phenomenal marriages. And if there isn't, there's only one person to blame for it. And that's you. Humanistic love. So Paul begins this discourse from the negative. And you know, it's really interesting. You have all these preachers, I don't want to get off on this, but get all these preachers that they only want positive messages. Of course, they got to, you know, rip out three quarters of the Bible and, uh, you know, preach something that's all fluffy and unbiblical. So often, when you look at the Bible defining God, it defines him from the negative, tells us what he is not. So he says, I am not like you, 
therefore I do not change. Does it all the time. I mean, if you take the time you look at, you'll see it constantly throughout the Word of God where God defines himself in ways that we, to use us as an example, says, I'm not like you. Don't make me like you. Don't make me act like you. Don't make me think like you because I don't do that. That's not who I am. Understand, I'm not like you. And so Paul is going to dismantle the lies that we believe, the lies we live behind, the lies we have trusted in for so long. You see, people think that they're experts in love. I mean, you know, people think that they really know how to do it. They think they got it down pat. I mean, you know, you can have this guy that thinks, man, I know how to ro romance a woman, but the problem is he doesn't know how to love. Because romance isn't love. We try and make it love, that's American. But that's not love because you can romance a person and never love the person because all you're wanting is to get something out of that person because romance can be thoroughly 100% selfish because it's about the individual still. I'm romancing you because I want something from you. Right? Doesn't that go on all the time? First date, they're in bed with each other. That's the American way. That's, the, that's what happens when we become Sodom and Gomorrah. And so here you have the situation that people think that they know what love is, they know what romance is, but they have no idea because they refuse to go to the authority on it, the one who is the author of love. William Shakespeare wrote a play, Romeo and Juliet. And you know what? What's done, what's happened with that, that becomes this, this thought of the epitome of romantic love. And uh, absolutely horrendous play. Horrendous. Terrible. Because it is 100% humanistic, man-centered, selfish love. Selfish man kills himself because he thinks his, the woman he wants to marry is dead. She wakes up, she kills herself. Utter, absolute selfishness. They call it a tragedy, a romantic tra tragedy. But the whole play is an absolute tragedy because it is just self-centered, selfish love. Selfish man kills himself and selfish woman kills herself. Not thinking about the family, not thinking about the pain. And then what does Shakespeare try to do? He tries to throw into the midst of it this supposed good thing. Well, the families, these aristocratic families that were at war with other, each other, now they make peace. And so this whole act of selfishness is ennobled. But it's a lie. It's a lie. It's a lie that people believe constantly. They believe it because it satisfies this selfishness in them. I want to be happy, and for me to be happy, you have to love me. And you have to love me the way I want to be loved. And it's not the selfless love that loves because we're called to love. So Paul's addressing in these three verses the problem of humanistic, man-centered love. Humanism, what is humanism? The philosopher Protagoras from the 3rd, 5th century B.C. ended up saying, defining humanism. Humanism is the sum and center of all things, where man is the sum and center of everything. So what is humanism? Me. Me. My wants, my desires, my happiness, my ambitions, my dreams. Me. And yet every bit of that is contrary to why we were created. Everything about that is hostile to God because we were not created for self. We were created for Him. And we find our greatest joy and purpose in loving Him and serving Him. Not in serving self. Not in looking after our own needs and becoming so consumed with self that it defines everything. But then we become a people that start looking at Him and seeing Him as the one that is worth the pursuit. The one giving up everything for Natural humanistic love is selfish. It's selfish. It's self-centered. Where life is all about me. Life and love is all about me. It is self-gratifying that everything is to satisfy my wants. It's all about satisfying my own wants, my own desires. It is full of selfish ambition. So people do things in a particular way to try and get something out of somebody else. Pretty scary stuff, really, when we start looking at it because we don't 
think like that normally because we have been so programmed by American culture and by the fall that we have made this selfish love a noble thing, failing to understand that it leaves nothing but a trail of pain behind us. The very thing we want, we want to be loved. And what do we do? We make a mess of everything. Man and woman walk down the aisle and they swear these vows of loyalty to each other. And what? A few years later, they're in, in divorce. The marriage is a nightmare. You know, just because they didn't know what love was and they didn't go to the one who can give the grace and strength to love. They loved in a natural, selfish, self-gratifying kind of love and they could not meet the needs of each other. And so it leaves nothing but pain. It leaves nothing but sorrow. When love is all about self, it becomes idolatrous. It becomes a false god, an idol we believe so that we make this idea of love, this God we serve. I will be happy when I am loved. My dad had multiple marriages and divorces. Died as an unbeliever. And you know his whole excuse for all the divorces that he went through? This is how he referred to it. Stupid woman. That was his phrase. That was his way. Just stupid women. Never looked at himself in the mirror. Never understood he didn't know what love was. He was a selfish, self-absorbed man and lived for that. And guess what that does to, to his sons and to his, his stepchildren? You know what that does? It makes children look at that and say, that's what love is. So what do you do? You copy it. You live it out because, well, that's what daddy did. That's what every, my mother did. That's what everybody does. So you live out this selfish love because you have no expression of what selfless love is. You don't even see it anywhere then. And so it becomes a fatalistic type of thing. It says, well, this is what we are, this is what we do, and so what can we do about it? C.S. Lewis made an interesting point. He says, there is but one good, that is God. Everything else is good when it looks to him and bad when it turns from him. And the higher and mightier in its natural order, the more demonic it will be if it rebels. It's not out of bad mice or bad fleas you make demons, but out of bad archangels. The higher the thing, when it's corrupted, the more evil it becomes. Think of that in relation to love. You have this thing that is so huge of a need in our life, but corrupt that thing, and it becomes this ugly monstrosity that is all about self, all about self-gratification, and all the other things that revolve around it. And what do we do then? We leave a trail of pain. Leave a trail of pain because we don't really see what we've been doing and then we blame everybody else for it. I'll be happy if I have another wife, if I have another husband, if I have another job, I have all these other things. Always looking for something else out there and we never find what we really need then through that first and greatest commandment to love God supremely. Always looking, fighting, clawing, warring, wanting something, never able to obtain it. This elusive happiness that's out there and we want it but we can't lay our hands on it because it's all a lie. Verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 13. The first lie that he has to deal with is the shallowness of words. And that true love is more than words. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Tongues of men. What would those be? Those words that can inspire, still, Stir an individual, those words of love. Oh, I love you, baby, I love you. And all these words of love that have no substance because there's no expression of what love really is behind it. You see the limitations of man's love, that it goes so far. Those words don't have substance unless the substance is really in the life. And the life can't be changed until there is a revolution on the inside. We cannot change who we are. We don't have the ability. It's like a, a, a leopard that has all these spots. And even God asks in the scriptures, can a leopard change its spots? Well, you can have that leopard go to a pile of ashes and roll in it saying, I want to be a panther. Is it going to be a panther? The spots are still there. You can't take them away. He could go and get some dead lion and strap onto his head the, 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 the head of a lion, but he's still just a leopard. Those spots are still there. The only way the spots can be removed, it must be by miracle. You see, we can't change. We love selfishly. 
We love selfishly. That's all we can do. That is the natural default. That's what's in us. And unless we have some outside source that begins to change us, and unless we begin to see this absolute need of change and stop blame shifting and blaming everybody else for our failures at loving, until that happens, nothing will change. We'll still do what we've always done, continue in the same old thing, because we have not come to the place to see that love, true love, real love is more than words. If I speak with the tongue of, tongues of angels, an exalted language, a language that is beyond human language, words that we don't even know what they are. If angels came down here and started trying to describe what it is in the throne room of God, we would have no understanding. We'd have no ability to do that because those words would not even make sense to us. He is beyond that. He is beyond that in just in tremendous ways. And so... If I could speak with the tongues of angels and I could proclaim all these wonderful words, words of power, revelation, and of wisdom, if I don't have love, it's still all worthless. It's all detrimental. It's contrary to what the love of God is. Love is more than feelings and emotions. You know, people do not fall into love and they don't fall out of love. Love is a choice. So when a man and woman start loving each other or when brothers in Christ or sisters in Christ begin to love each other, it's because they're making the choice to love each other. And how do we fall out of love? You don't fall out of love. You begin bit by bit making the choice of not loving. Hurts rise up. Hurts get there. So you say, I'm not going to love anymore. That hurts too much. That person has hurt me too many times. I'm not going to let that line be crossed again because I don't want to be hurt. I'm going to protect myself. That selfishness is there once again. Love is a choice of the will, not an emotion. Now, it's wonderful when we feel the emotion of love. It is. It's wonderful when we can love God and then we feel him wrap his arms around us. It's wonderful. He wants us to experience that, but love has to be not based on our emotions or experiences, but upon the choice to love. Love designed by God is an investment of our entire being. You understand? That's what this Christian life is all about. It's about loving God. It's about the entire, complete investment of our life, of everything of our life, because you can't do this halfway, and he'll not accept half of you. It is a wholehearted, complete devotion to this God. It is the reality that we have to come to that I cannot walk as a Christian. I cannot live as a Christian. I cannot love as what a Christian should unless Christ dwells in me and unless he gives me the grace to live that out. Otherwise, I will just do what I have been doing all along and the same old thing will come out of me. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Beautiful portion of Scripture. The imitators, therefore... Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So what is the command to Christians? To be imitators of God. How are we commanded here to imitate him? Christ's selfless love where he gave himself up where he sacrificed himself. But we're going to look at sacrifice in a little bit on how sacrifice can be another expression of not walking in the love of God. It can still be all about self. But when the love of God is working in our life, there will always be right expressions of sacrifice. And so we are to give ourselves up selflessly and with disinterested love. What do I mean by disinterested love? It is love that has no personal ambition to receive from it. That's how God loves. God does not love to get something from us. You understand? He loves, period. And if I give him all my love, it does not alter him. He does not change because he is the same and he cannot change. He is infinite in every dimension of his being. He does not need us, nor does he need our love. But when we love him, we enter into fellowship with this benevolent, wonderful, loving, caring, merciful God, and we begin to find benefits beyond anything we've imagined because of that. He says, if I can speak all these words and act out all these ideas, what love is, but I don't have the real thing. I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. I'm making a lot of noise. 
how easy it is for to the young man to go to this woman and give her promises of everything so he can get her in bed and there's nothing of substance in his life no love that's there he wanted something got what he wanted and when it gets old he'll go to something else you see unless we have this revolution inside of us that changes we're not going to change the way that we love We'll keep doing the same thing over and over again. What you did as a teenager, you just do now a little more sophisticated as an adult, but you'll still do the same identical thing because that's all you are. You cannot be other than what you are. You cannot change your spots. You must go to God and say, God, I need a revolution. I need a transformation. I can't do this. I can't get the spots, the stain of sin off of me. I must have you do it, God. You see, when... Real love is there, then words have power. It's not that we're not to use words, but they have to have the life behind it. And when they have the life behind it, then there is power that's there. Whether it's speaking to your spouse that you love them, your children, or whether it's to you know, people in the church or wherever, words of, of love and affection have the right place when there is real love. But if there's no real love, we're just deceiving ourselves with those words then and trying to deceive others. The second expression or error that Paul deals with here is in verse 2. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but have not love, I am nothing. What an interesting idea. Gifts, knowledge, and revelation, and even faith does not prove that a person is right with God. Do you understand? We so often look at something else than what the real fruit is. So we say, wow, look at that guy, man. He can, you know, God used him in healing, but do you have to look beyond how God is even using him? What's the life like? What's the life speaking? You see, love is the gauge that is really going to demonstrate our relationship with God. The fruit of the Spirit, not the gifts. The fruit of the Spirit is what reveals what type of person we really are. It reveals whether we are really in fellowship with God or not. It exposes the truth of us, good or bad. And so gifts and revelation and faith doesn't prove that a person loves God or loves others. doesn't prove that a person is even godly. But the fruit of the Spirit does. You can't fake the fruit of the Spirit. You might try and fake love for a little bit or some other things to a particular point, but that can only go so far. Then only what is real is going to be made manifest. And so this natural love cannot love in a selfless way. So the proof of our right standing with God is a godly character that's expressed through the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians chapter 5. I'm not going to take the time to go through that. But that's where it is. You wonder if somebody's a Christian? Look at the fruit of the Spirit. What does their fruit speak? Is it works of the flesh or is it work of the Spirit? What is it? What, what, does, what is revealed in the fruit that comes out of their life? That's what they are. Now, if they have, and if, if you're an unsaved individual, you've just had bad fruit your whole life. Selfishness has defined your life. That's all that's defined you. And if you're not going to let Jesus break into your life, then all you have hope for the future is of doing the same identical thing and repeating the same pain, the same sorrow, hurting more and more people because that is what you'll be destined to do in an unsaved condition with love that is always selfish. That's all it's going to be. So it's the selfless love of Christ that he wants operating through us that people can begin to say, I see the reality of Christ in you. I see the love that's in your life. I see the patience. I see the fruit of the Spirit being born there. There's evidence. It's obvious that that is part of you. That's what's defining you. And Jesus went and said something in John chapter 13 that selfless love is proof that we are a disciple. And what's interesting, I'm not going to go back to that verse, but what Jesus did in that verse, he basically gave the world the unsaved world, the right to say whether or not we are Christian. He says the world will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So the world is given the right then to say, you're not a Christian. I don't see anything of Christ in you. I don't see any love in you. I don't see the fruit of the Spirit. 
Isn't that crazy that he allows the world to say, okay, you're not a believer because you're not like Jesus. And I'm not a follower of Christ, but I know that you're not like Jesus. Or our life is going to be something that they'll look at and they begin to see a reflection, a mark of the character of God upon us. And they begin to see that and they begin to be drawn to it. Because if we live out this faith right, our marriages should be so beautiful that the world is watching and saying, how in the world did you get there? You understand what I'm saying? Our marriages should be such expressions of Christ and who He is that our children want to walk with Jesus, that they see the reality of it. That's what this faith is all about. It is to have that revolutionary dimension of transforming lives because we're walking in the place of fellowship with Christ and that life is being made manifest through the selfless love of God where we begin to pour out our life for the salvation of others, for the well-being of others. And so if I have faith and spiritual gifts but don't have love, I am nothing. And you know, as, as you think upon this, we all want to be special. Right? We all want to be special. We want somebody to think that we're special. And so you go through all this religious hoopla, all this, this hype, trying to make yourself special, and he says, there is no love in you, and everything you've done has been an absolute waste. It profited you nothing. Because you did the religious stuff without me. You did the religious stuff without my life being in you. You did the religious stuff without me defining you and your love. And that's why your marriage that is claiming to be Christian is a nightmare. Because we're not in that place of wanting to walk in the love of God. The third one. The deceptiveness of sacrifice. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, would have not love, I gain nothing. Isn't that interesting? I mean, people sacrifice usually because they want to get something out of it. And so natural love is stained with selfishness. It's selfish. That's all it is. It's always going to be selfish. That's all it can be. It can't change. God isn't wanting to take and fix your old selfish love. He's wanting to give you His love. He's wanting to give you a new life in Him. He doesn't want to make your old life good. You see, your old life is so corrupt, there's one thing He tells to do with it. Kill it. Crucify it. Okay? He doesn't say remodel it. You remodel the old nature, still the old nature just has a new facade on it. He says, kill that old nature and let me create in you a new life. A Christ-like life, a beautiful life, a life that is really you know, able to love like Him and to see the benefits and the power of that made manifest in you. And so many falsely think that sacrifice equals love. Right? Isn't that, isn't that the way it is? I don't normally recommend the book, not because it's not good. It is good, it's just people can sometimes misread something in it. So I'll give a little disclaimer here. But C.S. Lewis wrote a, a book called The Great Divorce. It's a story. To make it real simple, I just want to bring one point out that I think for a man at that time he was single was absolutely revelation from God. But the idea was here's these people in the outskirts of hell and uh, there's the opportunity to take a bus to the outskirts of heaven. And if they want to stay in heaven instead of go to hell, they can. Now, we know that's not how it works. He's just trying to bring out some interesting thoughts. So we can't make more of it in that than what it is. And so here you have these people. They come into the outskirts of heaven. And heaven is painful to them. It's painful. They go to walk on this lush grass and it's like needles in them. Everything. It's just this painful environment because they have been God-haters their whole lives. What happens then, you have these angels of the redeemed come up to these people that come off this bus that come out of hell and, and begin to minister to them. And one particular one that I want to touch on just real briefly, it was a mother. A mother came out of the bus and this person came up. I can't even remember who the person was, but this person came up and tried to start ministering to. And this woman says, I want to see my baby. I want to see my baby. My baby's dying. He says, well, come. Come and surrender to Christ and, and, and you'll be able to see your baby. 
You begin to see that uh, that knowledge of the knowledge of man. And as the deception went on more and more, she didn't want to stay in heaven. You know what she wanted to do? She wanted to take her little baby, her son, that was now in the bliss of God's presence and was willing to take that child to hell so she could be happy in hell, but that child would never make her happy. She took that child to hell. Don't, don't we think a mother's love is the epitome of sacrifice? And yet so much of a mother's love, even in that, can be selfish. See, the only way love can be selfless must be by love. must be by God transforming us. The natural is always going to have expressions of selfishness in it, always, without fail. Natural love is stained with selfishness. We can sacrifice because we want rewards from God. I'll put some extra money in the offering because, God, I need some more money. Won't you give me more? Tenfold, come on. The whole prosperity gospel is a lie. It's based on raw selfishness and humanism. Terrible, terrible message that the church has, has got sucked up into. We can sacrifice because we want to receive the praise of others. We want the pat on the back. We'll do something because we want people to say, oh, that was a good job. But it wasn't about selflessly loving and doing and sacrificing because we really cared for people. We can sacrifice for feelings of self-worth. I feel good about myself when I sacrifice. So we do it so that we feel good about ourselves. And then we say, well, I must be a Christian, right? Because look at I sacrificed something. We can sacrifice for personal advancement. I mean, you can have the guy that wants to be a multimillionaire and he's working 12, 14, 16 hours a day lying to himself, well, I'm just doing it so I can give my children a, the opportunity that I didn't have as a young man. I want them to be able to have a great job and go to college and have it all paid for. And, you know, it's just lies there. He's doing it all for himself. It's his own ego, his own advancement. It's not about his family. It's about him. We can sacrifice to try and earn someone love. Well, you know, I really hurt that person, and maybe I've, if I do enough sacrifice, I'll finally get that person back. But it doesn't work like that. It's still selfish. We can sacrifice for what we think is noble. And understand what I'm going to say here is not degrading of anything of the military, but because somebody goes to battle and dies in battle doesn't mean they go to heaven. Natural love is limited. It's always limited. Sacrifice is limited. When natural love is the, is the motivation, it is limited. Just, just look at the expression in marriage. So you two people swear those vows to each other, for better, for worse, for richer, poor, and so on. And it ends up in divorce. Why? Because it didn't take long before the nightmare of each other's character begins to come out and they're fighting each other like, like, like a, a couple of wild cats and just tearing each other to pieces. Why? Because they were loving only through the limited nature of natural love. They didn't have anything else and they didn't want to go to the source. And you know that the, the travesty is the absolute travesty is that you can have Christian marriages that are an absolute mess and they never, ever have to be. And always central to that problem is selfishness, selfishness, selfishness. Self-love, self-idolatry, and not the selfless love that Christ calls us to. I want you to think about this for a moment. I want this to be a little bit raw. Today, it's super-duper common for people to live together outside of matrimony. The Bible calls that fornication, and the Bible says that no fornicator will enter the kingdom of heaven. Okay? I'm not judging. If I go to a, a man and woman that's living together in fornication, and I tell them they're not going to heaven, I'm not judging them. The, the Word of God has already judged them. Okay? They're guilty, whether they like it or not. I just happen to be telling them the truth about that. Does that man love that woman? if he's willing to take her to hell? Do you understand what I just said there? How much can a man love a woman if he wants to take her to hell? That's scary stuff. Can a parent love children? 
and not want to raise them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord and send their children to hell because they are never told the gospel? They are not, they don't see the reality of it. Can they love in reality to send their children to hell? That's scary stuff, but that's what parents do all the time. They perpetuate their rebellion in the children and the children rebel. Uh, perpetuate in the next generation and on and on and on until somewhere along the line somebody comes to their senses and surrenders to Christ and begins to break that long chain of generational sins that has brought just pain and suffering. It says, if I sacrifice but have not love, I gain nothing. The very thing I, I'm sacrificing for, I'm not even gaining what I want out of it. So the man that wants to become a multimillionaire, he's thinking when I get this money, I'll be happy, and he's more miserable than he's ever been. I had a friend. I helped start a business, became a multi-million dollar year business. He backslid over the wealth that he got. I did not go into partnership with him. He wanted me to, but I had started a church in Detroit, and, and I was just, that's where I was. That's what was the, the goal of my life, not to make a business. He backslid over it. Lost his marriage, stuck a butcher knife in his chest because his life became so utterly miserable from the wealth that he got. And so the very sacrifice that we think we're doing to try and get something that's going to make us happy because it's all hostile to God, contrary to him, it does the total opposite. It brings pain and suffering and misery. And yet there's the whole time, there's Jesus. The whole time, there's Jesus calling, wooing, holding out his hands, inviting. And we say, no, 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 that, that won't make me happy. And yet nothing of your sin will make you happy. Nothing can satisfy. Of the sinful nature, the love that you have is going to be abusive. It cannot do anything good in your life. And there's Jesus and we ignore him. Yet Jesus said, what good is it for a man to gain the whole world? It forfeit his soul. And what is that gain? It could be money. It could be possessions. It could be a person. It could be whatever. And you gain the thing that you want. You sacrifice for. You sought after so hard. And yet you get nothing of what you thought it would give. Because you did not live for Jesus. What selfish natural love cannot give us the selfless love of God can. Everything in your life that you've been aching for, behind it all is lies, illusions, deception. And yet there's Jesus calling out to you even this morning. Are you weary of your natural, humanistic, man-centered love? Are you weary of all the pain that has been giving you? Are you weary of leaving a trail of pain? Are you weary of people selfishly loving you and you being hurt from them? Are you yet weary of it? Will you not come and run home to Jesus? And so we cannot change the way we love by ourselves. The ability to change begins with God and God alone. But the ability as Christians for us to love any better begins with God as well. Because we must come to the place and see the reality of where we fail at loving. Because if we're not going to be courageous enough to see that, then we're not going to deal with it in the place of prayer and cry out in repentance, God, help me to love. When I look at my own life, the place I fail most is loving. It's where I fail most. That's where God convicts me so often in ways that I, I fail in loving. So i got to go to him and says, God, forgive me. Forgive me for that selfish love. Help me to go beyond this selfish nature that I have naturally to begin to love a little bit more like you. We've got to be willing to deal with it because if we won't deal with it, there's no hope of change. You'll do the same identical thing you've been doing because you're not going to the only source that can transform your life. And we must go there because that's the remedy. And so what does it begin with? The thing that we necessarily don't even want to consider so often. We must love, love God selflessly. Before I got saved, 
during the hippie movement, the Jesus movement, this Jesus freak band came down to the park where I partied in all the time and they set up their instruments and started playing. And uh, I went to one of the guys and started talking to him and man, it didn't take long before I am just in his face saying, you are an absolute fool. Because I thought life was just about partying. That's the only purpose of it. You know, I just lived to party. That was it. My dad was a cop. I was a criminal. I didn't want what my dad had and all the multiple marriages and divorce and the miserable life that he gave his, his whole family. I didn't want that. So I figured just a life of party. That's it. Live to party. What else is there? And yet in the whole midst of it was this ache inside of me, this pain, this loneliness that nothing could satisfy. And I didn't know what to do with it. I didn't know how to deal with it until one day this God broke in my world when I wasn't looking for him, when I didn't want him. And if you would have went just a few months prior when that band was there, and I didn't even remember that until sometime after I was, I was saved, but if I would have went to that guy again, I would have said, you had the truth. Why didn't I listen to you? And in one moment, this rebel, this man that lived for one purpose, for self-indulgence, in one moment, this God broke through all the darkness, all the pain, all the loneliness, all this stuff. And in one moment, I became his. And everything changed. That's what Jesus offers. And so we must love God selflessly before we can love others selflessly. Whenever I fail at loving others, it's always because I'm not loving God the way that I should. The remedy to my not loving people properly is going to God, say, God, forgive me because I've not been loving you like I should. That self-love, God, I let it rise up so easy. Help me to love more like you. That's where the power to be able to, to love others is going to be in loving him well. Do you know why you were created? You weren't created for sin. You weren't created for rebellion. You weren't created to live your own life, your own way, and do your own thing. You were created for him. You were created for Jesus. And because you were created for him, you will never, ever find what you are looking for apart from him. You'll continue the search for some purpose and meaning and love and something to bring happiness to you. And again and again, you will find that those things cannot meet the needs. It's like you're chasing after a fog. You're seeking after this fog and you think this fog is going to make you happy. And have you ever tried to grab a fog? There's nothing there, but you can see it. It's real. It's right before your eyes, but you grab it. And that's what the world gives you, a fog of lies and deception. And you think, when I get this person, when I get this thing, when I get this money, when I get this position, and you go to lay hands on it, just when you go to lay hands on it, there's nothing there. And guess what? There's another lie in front of you. And you start chasing after that because you have not come to see the excellency of knowing Christ Jesus. The Lord created us to love him supremely. And you have, if you are not a believer, you have inside of you an ache right now. An ache inside of you that nothing has been able to satisfy and meet. And that ache is calling out, in essence, to God. Then God is pulling upon that ache inside of you, this knowledge that something is very broken inside of you. This knowledge that only God can somehow meet that need and bring that healing in your life. And what are you going to do with it then? Are you going to run to him? Are you going to go and run home? Say, Jesus, I am so weary of my sin. I'm so weary of the pain, oh God. I am a rebel. I have rebelled and rebelled. Jesus, I'm tired of the rebellion. I'm coming home. Do you know what this salvation really is? If I could make this so simple, this call to salvation 
is the call to love God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Just that simple. Father, we come before you now in the precious name of Jesus, and Lord, you know every person here. And Holy Spirit, I pray you speak to married couples. I pray you speak to those who want to be married. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would bring conviction to your people that they'd have the courage to see their failure in loving selflessly, that their life has been consumed with selfish love. And Lord, they may be at a point, even as a believer, of not knowing how to change. But Lord, that's only by throwing ourselves at your feet. But Lord, anybody here that does not know you, anybody here that's a backslider, God, I pray you tug upon the ache and the pain that's in their life, that you pull upon that, that you help them to see the reality that the reason for that pain is their rebellion against you, is the sin that they have practiced, their rebellion and refusing to come to you. God, help them to see it and help them to want to run home to you, Jesus. Help them to want to run home, oh God, instead of perpetuating the same insanity that's gone on in their life, thinking that if they do the same thing again, that somehow it's going to have a different result. Jesus, help them to see that you are the only answer to their life. In the precious name of Jesus. If you are not a follower of Jesus, you want to come to him I'm going to open this altar up in just a moment and I'm going to ask you to walk down this aisle and come forward I'm going to ask you to lay aside your fear of man which is pride that's what pride is, fear of man lay aside your pride that will keep you from an altar and keep you from relationship with Jesus to lay aside the pride and to be willing to, to come to an altar, say, God, I am so weary of my sin. I'm so weary of my life. I'm so weary of the pain. Jesus, would you save even me? And if you'll come to an altar and cry out to him, I will give you a promise that there's a God that is aching, yearning to save you. That there's a God that will save you this morning if you're willing to come to him on his terms, not your terms. You have to come to him and say, God, I am a vile sinner. I have rebelled against you. Forgive me. Change me, O oh God. And if you invite him into your life, he will enter and begin that inward revolution that will last throughout eternity.